Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Many listeners will be familiar with the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill that's been making its way through Parliament over the last few months. It is a far-reaching piece of legislation that would, if passed into law, result in an enormous and unprecedented extension of policing powers, severely curtailing the right to peaceful protest. Over the summer, many people have taken to the streets to voice their opposition and alarm as part of Kill the Bill protests around the country. I'm your host, Chris Brown, and this month we've decided to focus our show on an aspect of the policing bill that is perhaps less often discussed. That is, the manner in which it will specifically threaten Gypsy, Roma and Traveller, or GRT, communities. We'll also be talking about the histories, identities and lived realities of Gypsies, Roma and Travellers in this country today, and the ways in which anti-GRT racism is already manifested institutionally. Now, in a slight deviation from our normal format, this episode is going to be structured in two parts. So first, we have an interview with the wonderful Joe Clement. Joe is the managing editor and creative director of Butcher's Dog Poetry Magazine. She's also a Roma Gypsy and a member of the Drive to Survive team. Drive to Survive is a grassroots campaign against Section 4 of the policing bill that threatens Gypsy, Roma and traveller life in Britain. In the second part of the show, we're going to be joined on the panel for a discussion with two fantastic guests. These are Luke Smith, a Romani gypsy activist and founder of GRT Socialists, and Ben Smoke, politics editor at Huck magazine and one of the Stansted 15. So first, without any further ado, this is our interview with Joe Clement, and we hope you enjoy. So Joe, firstly, thank you so much for agreeing to take part in the show. It's really wonderful to be able to speak to you. Um, Could you tell us firstly a little bit about yourself uh, in terms of your interests, your work and your background? So how does your identity as a Roma Gypsy inform or intersect with your work? Thanks very much, Chris. It's fantastic to be here, wherever here might be for your listeners. I'm a poet and a publisher from the northeast of England, where I run Butcher's Dog and Indie Press. And we aim to platform marginalised voices of all kinds uh, the countless crossovers of, you know, people of colour, disability, rights in translation, LGBTQI+, working class writers. I suppose I'm always looking for writers who feel on the edge of things or excluded by the mainstream funded publishing industry, or just that they're more generally unheard in society. And that's one of the reasons I admire Pluto Press so much, for being radical. So my personal quest for equality has a lot to do with my being a British gypsy. I've had a strong interest in outsider art, both literary and visual, for many, many years. And I guess I'm just tired of seeing the same straight, white, able-bodied roster of writers and artists appear in the same prominent places over and over again. So my work is really inseparable from my ethnicity, but also from my being working class. And there's a faction of poets and critics out there who suck their teeth at that notion. But for me, I'm very proud that it does. I'm of the mind that my culture has some of the most resilient, intelligent, powerful and inspiring people I've ever met. So when I see Daniel Baker placing trespass signs in a museum or Delane Labar performing the Gypsy Witch, I feel this powerful shared resistance to the institutions that have historically excluded us and I think it's time that we started speaking up for ourselves. 
Could you say a bit about what it was like growing up as a Roma Gypsy in Britain? What are your recollections of being part of that community in terms of the way of life uh, and also in terms of how the community was perceived by wider society? Well, I should start by saying that it's interesting when we talk about gypsy identity that it is often placed into a past rather than a present context. And for me, it's kind of the other way around because I kept my ethnicity under my heart for a very long time and now it's very present with me. Um, I grew up on a council estate and our house was decorated with horse brass. We had a caravan in the garden. Sometimes we worked farms. Sometimes we caught rabbits for our tea. I guess we just did things differently to other people. You know, we lived on the same street. But despite this, ethnicity was definitely on the down low. We'd never say publicly, yes, we're Roma gypsies, not for a very long time. And until 2015, it wasn't even a legally recognised ethnicity to be a traveller. So lots of us kept quiet to protect families, jobs, reputations, against all of the kind of stereotypes and prejudices that people carry um, about the Gypsy Roma and Traveller community. And it's interesting because some people will say, oh, my aunt so-and-so was a bit of a gypsy. And they'll try and push it as far away from themselves um, as they can and to turn DNA into some kind of strange offstage character. And I understand why that happens. But for me, I, I got tired of hiding. I hit a point in my life and in my creative practice where I knew that the territories of race and of class were my jumping off points always. And I'd wanted to, I'd wanted to speak out about what it meant to live in my skin and really what that ethnicity and identity meant to me. Because I should say, we didn't travel when I was growing up but that was much more to do with my dad being disabled. So there's prejudice and there's hate about being a traveller that comes from the settled community, yes. But there's also sort of a romanticised version of what a traveller is as well, this idea of being a true gypsy, that we must travel to be travellers ethnically. Um, And that's just completely at odds with the reality of DNA, with the reality of being humans. You know, we get sick we get old and it's really no wonder because living on the road is hard. Sometimes moving into a house is the right move for your family or for your personal health and it has absolutely nothing to do with your blood. Do you feel like much has changed over the years in terms of the racism and discrimination faced by the Gypsy Roma Traveller community? Are things improving? Well, I'd like to say that we're making progress, but ideology and race hate is such an invisible evil it's really hard to keep up with um, identifying instances of it uh, let alone maintaining the energy to fight it Uh, for example there's a there's currently a very shocking high profile case in the czech republic a roma man called stanislav thomas died in police care and i of course use care very loosely there because there are parallels to the murder of George Floyd in that his neck was also knelt upon. And racism happens both at the local and the state levels, whether it's through accepted behaviours, official policy, or someone spray-painting, die, gypsy, on the side of your home. It's thriving out there. And 
you might not think it's a big deal, but it's upsetting, for instance, to even go into a shop and see something on the hanger labelled Gypsy Top or one of those hippy-dippy bohemian ventures that pop up on Instagram ads that capitalise on our culture and sell, I don't know, gypsy spirit jewellery or gypsy eau de toilette, you know, whatever it is. If you replace gypsy with any other pejorative word, any other racist slur, that problem becomes so much more clearer. And then there's this bill. Hmm. So the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill has been described as one of the biggest threats to the traditional way of life of Romani gypsies and Irish travellers in our lifetime. So what elements of this bill are particularly concerning or threatening from the perspective of GRT communities in Britain? So I think the obvious thing to note here is that we're still living through a pandemic and during the early months of this pandemic, when settled people were being told to stay put and to lock down at home, Gypsy Roma and traveller people who were living on the road were still being moved on by local police and councils. Basically, travellers were being told to move from one town to another because there's no room for you here. That's the first thing that I want to flag, um, and it's something that nobody is talking about. It endangered not just travellers in treating us as less than human, but it also endangered settled communities that we were moved from and, and into. You know, our presence is so unwanted that in the middle of a pandemic, even in the middle of sort of end of days, we weren't allowed to stop. We weren't welcome. And the second thing in that is the the country is experiencing a massive shortage in housing and this bill will make living on the road illegal. And that's going to make individuals and families homeless. Poorer people are going to be made poorer because there are these massive £2,500 fines and additional powers, which means that, you know, adults can be arrested. And this is going to put GRT children at risk of being taken from their parents. The whole thing just doesn't make sense, given the already huge pressures on public safety nets. And also, we need to think about the amount of money that would be spent on implementing this bill. If you look at the costs of high-profile evictions, such as Dale Farm, and then think about how many individual examples there are of roadside evictions. Couldn't all this money really be put to better use by giving us what we've asked for for years? And that's safe, legal stopping places. Hmm. To what extent do you think the policing bill was designed with these outcomes in mind? Is the threat to GRT community's way of life specifically intended or is it just collateral damage uh, in a broader attempt to curtail the right to protest? I think that's an interesting question and I think it's worth mentioning that the police chief's council have formally said that they don't want any of these additional powers. That relates to section four of the police bill and they agree that the answer is more safe legal sites and not to make the travelling way of life illegal and apparently the, the former is much more complicated than the latter for the government um and i can't in that respect circumvent those who are responsible for voting through the bill the conservative party in their majority they won't be personally implementing it or seeing how it's going to directly mess with people's lives and erase a cultural tradition which is by the way one of diasporic nature the roma travel because we've moved on for centuries from our homelands in india so 
whilst I worry for traveler people being disempowered and I do I worry more about what the ideologies this bill will empower in people across society um, when racism and hatred of the other is already rife and and for example perhaps this is a different conversation but I won't forget that in the three months after the Brexit vote went through homophobic attacks in the UK increased by 147% and you might argue that those things aren't connected but the facts are there state-sanctioned movements have ripple effects and we cannot disregard them so let's talk about drive to survive which is a campaign that's emerged earlier in the summer how did that campaign come together uh, who's involved in it and what are its aims well, the campaign is led by two GRT folks, Jake Bowers and Sherry Smith, who are our co-chairs, and they're working really hard to make known a summer of discontent against the policing bill, specifically the fourth section, which targets nomadic ways of living on the road. There's also a team of people who are chipping into social media, events management, design, all the good graft behind a campaign that can help it gain traction and support right across the UK. And on that front, I worked with translators in Scottish Cand, Welsh Cali and Romanes because I think it's really important that we spread the message about the bill, which, yes, it will take place in, in England, but it will obviously affect those who travel nomadically throughout the UK. And we wanted to touch base with all spokes of the GRT wheel. Um, and the message that we're sending is very simple. Section 4 of the Police Crime and Sentencing Bill is racist and it must not pass through the Lords. Mm. Could you talk about the protest that took place in Parliament Square on the 7th of July? Who was there and what was particularly significant about that day? Well, I'm a Northern lass and it takes and indeed costs quite a lot to come to London. Um, But with the support from Artists' Union England, I was able to hop on the train and within COVID safe restrictions at the time, attend the protest as a free individual representing myself and no other institutions or otherwise, which is just as I'm doing today. Um, I spent time beforehand in the studio making prints, which is another part of my practice, to give out three to those who came along. And this was a really great opportunity to chat and get a sense of, of things and feeling on the day. From the conversations I had, the crowd was made up of Roma travellers, Irish travellers, Scottish travellers, boaters and bargees. There were people of colour, there were disabled folks, there were LGBTQI people. We were all there. Um, And there were also new travellers and settled peoples. Some people were there and they were protesting for the first time. And I think something that was really interesting in the people that I spoke to is that none of us really wanted to be there, I don't think. Um, and that shows what a, what kind of a community we really are. We're considerate of both each other, but also of the law. Um, we had Lolo B. Jones there from the Dicklaw Collective, who was giving away scarves and artwork to anyone from the community. Um, and we also had artist Delaine Labar there performing the Romani Embassy. So standout speakers for me came from the heart of the community. Um, Luke Wenman stirred up the crowd with a really impassioned speech 
But there were others standing with us. Marvina Newton from Black Lives Matter made it clear that no racism should be tolerated and that actually these groups that are combating racism now, we need to work together against racism in all its forms. And Baroness Shami Chakrabarti was there and she spoke and reminded us of the power of the Kill the Bill slogan. I know some folks have been discouraged from using it because there have been claims that it sparks violence against the police. Um, but I thought it was really important to note that she took that issue on directly in front of Parliament um, and amidst all these statues of, um, you know, the most inspiring people. She made a point of stating that Kill the Bill as a slogan relates to nothing more than a piece of legislation that we want to eradicate. It was, you know, a reminder that our voices are more powerful than we think and our words can really stir up change. Mm. So where next for the campaign? Well, there's a whole host of local action planned, um, but the next two major dates in the Gypsy Roma and Traveller calendar are coming up in August. On the 2nd of August, we remember that in 1944... 2,897 Roma and Sinti men, women and children were killed in the Nazi gas chambers. Um, Romanes calls the genocide more broadly a devouring. And I think that's the right word because it was completely catastrophic. There were 200,000 estimated Roma and Sinti who were murdered, starved or died of disease under Nazi rule. And that's around 25% of an already marginalised population. So we absolutely take the time to remember those lost and to pay our deepest respects. The second date in the traveller calendar is Appleby Horse Fair, which takes place from the 12th to the 16th of August this year. This is the largest annual gathering of gypsies and travellers in Europe and Drive to Survive will be there proudly to raise community awareness of the bill, to showcase a whole host of professional artists and makers working across various formats. And there's also a first for the fair. There's going to be a talent show, which is very exciting. Um, and it shows that, you know, whilst we're there to honour our traditions and the origins of our past, um, we're very much keeping positive and looking to the future. Brilliant. Well, a massive thank you to you, Joe, for joining us today. That was an interview with Joe Clement. You can find out more about Joe's work at joeclement.co.uk and you can go to drivetosurvive.org.uk for the latest updates about the campaign. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our panel discussion with Luke Smith and Ben Smoke. Okay, so yeah, Ben, Luke, thank you both very much for joining us today. It's really great to have you here. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that there's a lot of misconceptions and general ignorance, right, about gypsies, Roma and travellers. Uh, and that comes from, you know, people of all political stripes. And those three terms are often used kind of interchangeably or they're unthinkingly sort of bundled together. So it's a real sort of, yeah, 101 type question. But could one of you start off by saying a little bit about the distinctions between these sort of three groups or identities when we're talking about gypsies, Roma and travellers? So there's distinctions between gypsies, Roma and travellers, and it comes from our origins are slightly different, our languages are slightly different, and our cultures are also slightly different. 
So gypsies uh, like myself, like Romani gypsies who have been in this country for around 500 years. So we came, we came here in about the 1500s. So we're talking like the time of Queen Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, Henry VIII. Mm. Um, we're mentioning legislation around 1530 called the Egyptians Act. And we originally migrated from India. So that's where we're from. Our language is, you know, an Indian language. Uh, many of our customs we've actually kept from all those many centuries ago. And then there's Roma, who are also actually from the same place, so northern India. Uh, they also have language and words that are derived from Indian languages. And they sort of left the migration at an earlier point than, than we did. So on the way, you come from India, you go through all the Middle East, you go through Eastern Europe, then like places like Greece, Italy, you know, even places like Egypt. And we all sort of split off in our own directions. Hmm. And then in each countries along the way, we've all experienced different histories and we've settled under different rulers. We've taken on different religions and that, that's really the distinction between Romani gypsies and Roma, is that we just left that migration at different stages. And the history that we've experienced since we left that overall migration has been different. So, for example, Roma in Romania suffered slavery hmm. until the 1870s. So pretty recent history. Um, a lot of Roma in, say, the Czech Republic were forced into slums and ghettos. Uh, and then, you know, Hungary, Bulgaria, all, all sorts of places like that. Some settled under like the Ottoman Empire and things like that. So places like Serbia and Kosovo, there's Roma that are Muslims. And then obviously you get to Roma in places like Romania and they're either Orthodox or in other places in Eastern Europe, they're Catholic. So we tend to take on the religion of the country that we find ourselves in. But obviously there's been a divergence because whilst a lot of Roma have been forcibly settled in Eastern Europe, in the UK, nomadisms, there's been a long history up until really recent times of nomadism being uh, popular and prevalent and being okay, really. And there's been less forced settlement. There still has been some forced assimilation, but um, in terms of being nomadic, we've been allowed to live a nomadic life. So it's only in generations in my family, we've only really settled in, in this, this generation that that's coming through now. Um, then the differences between, you know, Romani gypsies and Roma, which are originally from India, and Irish travellers is that Irish travellers aren't from India. They're actually native to these isles and then so are scottish travelers and they're actually celtic groups their language is celtic their culture is celtic in origin and a lot of people seem to forget that throughout human history you know nomadism was the default it's not some strange concept that has just come out of nowhere mm. that is the original way humans have, have lived before the development of modern agriculture so and that, that's not just a uh, nomadic peoples from the far east but you know celtic peoples have lived nomadically for for thousands of years as well so there's irish travelers which really should be called uh, pavi or minkir i think most in the uk prefer pavi and then there's also scottish travelers scottish highland travelers which really should be called norkin and that's what they prefer to call themselves and and they speak a, a different language whilst irish travelers speak Celtic language called like Cant and things like that. Um, Scottish travellers speak the Beulah Regard or something, and 
I can't really say it. I'm not really a Scottish traveller, but this is what I know. And we've all sort of been lumped in together because it's been convenient for white male civil servants. Um, it's easy to lump nomadic peoples together and lump minorities together. It's the same sort of putting people in a basket that don't really belong in the same basket as like the term BAME, mm. black and minority ethnic and, and things like that so it's the same sort of thing it's it's sort of a lazy way of dealing with minorities and the british state hasn't exactly been the most understanding um and nuanced when it comes to minorities anyway so that that's really the crash course of where <laughs> we're all from our languages and things like that great so as a, as a follow-up to that then i suppose are there presumably distinct sort of oppressions that people from these different categories face so there are distinct sort of oppressions that they face. I mean, re really, the main one's racism, right? So we all sort of experience racism. But, for example, the discrimination that gypsies and Irish travellers face is more similar to, to each other than what Roma face. So Roma are basically dealt with under the hostile environment and, uh, you know, the Home Office doing all sorts of naughty things regarding immigration statuses, forcibly deporting people that have a right to be here for no other reason than the fact that they're, you know, considered undesirable uh, because the British state is racist. There's less sort of discrimination around being nomadic for Roma because most Roma are settled into houses and you know from where they've come from they were settled and now when they're here they're also settled there's big communities in like Go govan hill glasgow sheffield have big communities of roma i mean discrimination is similar in terms of its othering it's making people other and blaming them for all society's problems that aren't caused by them so that's where it's similar but then there's a different aspect where you know Irish travellers and Romani gypsies experience the discrimination where it comes to living their historic way of life when it comes to being nomadic. So we all experience racism and othering and things like that, but then there's also this other aspect that's tackled in the police, crime, courts and sentencing bill. So yeah, there's that. There's that distinction there in terms of what we face. But at the end of the day, all of our outcomes are all equally terrible. Our reading and literacy rates are the worst in the country. Our life expectancy are some of the worst in the country. Uh, infant mortality, literally every statistic that you can think of, people, all three of these groups experience um, horrendous outcomes. And you can just look at the government's own statistics on this. They've just released a plan for like a million pounds, which, you know, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what we actually face in reality. But for all three of those groups, um, things look dire. Like people often talk about pensions and things like that. And in our community, we're sort of sitting there going, well, what's a pension? <laughs> we don't live long enough to claim a pension. So why do we care? So that's the sort of um, racism that we face. It's both direct and indirect. So it's not just a, people calling us dirty P-words and jippos and the rest of it. It's also in the NHS where they refuse all three of those groups access to healthcare services, where schools are suspending and expelling our children en masse or putting them in, in isolation for most of their school life and segregating us from other pupils and things like that. So there's some pretty horrendous forms of discrimination going on, but all three groups seem to experience uh, similar on, in that regard. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, let's definitely talk some more about uh, how this kind of racism is manifested institutionally uh, in a bit. So listeners at the moment, if they're listening kind of roughly when this episode comes out, will probably be aware that there's this bill currently passing through Parliament, it's passed through the Commons and now it's in the Lords. Um, and it's the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, bit of a mouthful. Yeah, could someone say a little bit more about this uh, this bill, right, that's currently on its, I think, second reading or something in the Lords? What is it in its broadest sense about? And what would it bring about if it was to become law? Yeah, I can say that. So we've been kind of calling it the policing bill um, because it it's a very, very broad piece of legislation. I think it's roughly 308 pages now. And it encompasses a huge range of different issues, brings in a whole new raft of different offences, but mostly it's about giving the police more power. So whether we're looking at giving the police more power to be able to shut down protest, uh, which are you know, kind of provisions within the bill that if a protest is is loud or annoying, the police can deem it to be unlawful under this legislation and use various parts of it to shut it down, to criminalise people. Yeah, I think parts of it you can be imprisoned for. Uh, it brings in new um, offences around like vandalising statues. I mean, you know, lots of this comes directly as a result of both uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, last year um, and you know the kind of huge explosion of, of street activity that we saw across the early summer last year and also Extinction Rebellion, uh, particularly, I think, around the stuff that they were doing in, in autumn. Um, and there was obviously quite the, the quite famous... Uh, action they did where they blocked off the printing presses and this pissed off the government but I think we need to kind of when we're talking about this policing bill so that that's like that's one bit and another part which I'm sure we'll come on to in much more depth is the introduction of trespassers criminal offense which will obviously you know have a huge impact on gypsy Roma and traveler communities it will also have a huge impact on various and other kind of activities and communities including protests but I think lots of the talk around this bill has been about how it's a direct result of uh, BLM and it's a direct result of XR, which to a certain extent it is. I think particularly some of the very specific provisions within it, um, talking about like the vandalizing of the statues and stuff like that. But actually, if we go back to 2019, essentially everything that we're, we're seeing now was, was in the Conservative Manifesto. It was there in black and white. They wanted to do all of this. And this has been sort of something that they've been been trying to do for years and years and years. But you can kind of track back to Theresa May, who quite famously hated the Human Rights Act. It was very inconvenient for her, not just in terms of putting in the hostile environment, but also in terms of protest uh, and the rights that it enshrines within that. So, yeah, the policing bill is essentially this monolithic piece of legislation that will give huge amounts of power and discretion to police in this country who, as we have seen time and time again, are already out of control, who already do not wield the fairly extreme amount of power that they have correctly or legally a lot of the time. So it will give them even more, which is, I think, petrifying, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just talking about police powers, is it something that the police want i mean i saw yesterday that the police federation issued this vote of no confidence in the home secretary pretty patel now that was over a planned pay freeze so kind of unrelated but i suppose that serves as a reminder that the government and police do occasionally have differing agendas um yeah so is this something that the police are calling for maybe with particular reference to the stuff on 
criminalizing trespass? I think yes and no. I I think there's so there have been various different bits of press that police have said, "Oh, we don't we don't want these." powers we never asked for this specific power we never asked for this specific thing and then you'll see another bit of press where it's actually oh you know we really did and i think if you look at the way that the police have been behaving they've already kind of asked for these powers by stepping outside of the power that they have multiple times um you know just look at the way that Cressida dick used the public order act in 2019 i think it was hard to say all of the years have blended into one uh, in 2019, to shut down Extinction Rebellion across the entirety of London, and in terms of you know wanting new legislation around trespass, I don't, I don't genuinely think that they necessarily want or need it. I mean, they they already have a fair amount of power. It will obviously give them more, uh, and it will be incredibly damaging and awful. But to me, it's very much sort of it's a case of politicians just manoeuvring, politicians um, showboating kind of trying to be strong for their base, particularly the kind of growing um, hard right base that the Tories are tapping into. But the, the issue with showboating and um, using legislation to do that means that we don't have those powers in place. Like They are, they are then law uh, and they will be used, um, I think, quite extensively uh, by the police in the coming years. Mm. Just talking about the 2019 manifesto, because obviously this legislation, as you say, hasn't just come out of nowhere. Um, it was clearly signposted. Um, you wrote an article for Huck, I think, a couple of years ago, where you talked about the how the manifesto kind of dealt with the issue of, you know, quote unquote, unauthorised traveller camps uh, under its section on crime. So the framing there is already significant. Um, and while there's a lot of, you know, talk in that about how they're going to tackle what they deem to be trespassing, I'm just wondering if there was any rhetoric sort of in that manifesto as well, you know, about what they were going to do in terms of like creating, you know, authorised pitches and if there was, has any of that materialised or is it just this kind of, yeah, criminalising sort of law enforcement approach? To my recollection, it was very much the criminalising law and order approach. And I think that that's quite telling. Um, and it's not just the Tories because Labour also do it. Um, and prominent Labour politicians have been doing it for years. Just the way that travellers and gypsies and Roman people in this country are seen as inherently criminal. It is counter to so much of what the state and what the establishment um, want people to look like, what people, what people's lives to look like. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's already an obligation within various different acts for local authorities to provide sites. And I think the last, the last time I checked, there's only about a third of them that were actually meeting this stipulation. And so, you know, the, the, the government haven't done anything in terms of of enforcing that okay, over a number and number of years. So the idea that we're suddenly going to criminalise trespass without in any way investing, without in any way giving people places to go, essentially it's just this pincer movement um, to, to try and eradicate people, to try and, to try and take away their lifestyle. And it's, yeah, it's petrifying. I'm sure Luke has got much more kind of like detailed stats on stuff. But yeah, that was kind of my recollection of, of the manifesto. Mm. Yeah, so they didn't they didn't put into place when they released this. It is very much about criminalisation. There's no sort of there's no laws being introduced or policy being introduced to rectify the massive shortage of transit sites, permanent sites. 
and also negotiated stopping across this country. If anything, in terms of planning law, things are actually getting harder and getting worse. So there used to be an obligation to provide sites for local authorities, but that's actually been repealed or been watered down over you know uh, several years. They basically only have to consider gypsies and travellers in their local plan, in which case it's absolutely fine. They can do whatever they want, pretty much. This isn't about them not liking unauthorised encampments. This is about them not liking gypsies and travellers and Roma in general. This is very much an ethnic, racial, victimisation set of policies. Um, Going back to what the police said, 70 to 75% of police authorities across the country actually said that they didn't want these extra powers regarding trespass. And actually, those police forces wrote back and said, why don't you think about providing them with proper site provision? So as much as I'm not a fan of the police forces across this country... Many of them did actually write and say, this is not the way to solve this. And they actually went down the same route that the High Court said about High Court injunctions and basically said, well, have you thought about actually providing these people with proper provision? So, yeah, it's not all bad in terms of where the, where the police are coming from. The charities basically got those responses out of the local police uh, forces. But like I say... This isn't about them thinking, oh, yeah, let's solve the site problem and shortage problem, and then we'll talk about criminalisation of trespass. This is done very deliberate to criminalise us as a minority, and they want to fill these new private prisons and secure schools and the rest of it that are also contained in the Act. So we're very much seen as criminal. I mean, you see that. The Board of Deputies, when they interviewed Priti Patel about gypsies and trapped, and they actually asked the question about, you know, what are you doing with this act? She essentially goes, well, these people are culturally criminal. Hmm. Um, you know, crime is rife within their community. They don't care about the laws of the land, this, that and the other. And she basically says some horrendously awful and racist things on that published broadcast by the Board of Deputies. I mean, it goes slightly challenged, but pretty much is left unchallenged, mostly. That's by an ex-Labour MP that interviews her. But, yeah, I mean, in this bill, it's pretty savage, the implication, what it means for some of the most vulnerable families in the country the 15 to 20 percent roughly of gypsies and travelers that are still nomadic Mm. i mean this bill is armageddon for them because what it means is that the police that we already know are brutal towards our communities and we experience massive amounts of police brutality from them and people have had their legs almost bitten off by police dogs irish traveler women with epilepsy who are pregnant have been dragged across fields so violently that they've had epileptic seizures this bill gives those same police officers at their discretion to remove the homes of gypsies and travellers and remove their vehicles as well. And then those families wouldn't get those vehicles and homes back until criminal proceedings have taken place. Well, we all know what the justice system looks like these days. And that, you know, that could be years before they get their their homes back. So they go from an unconventional form of homelessness to a conventional form of homelessness. Then the other part of it is that the justice system that we already experience harrowing outcomes within and we're overrepresented in the justice system um, we're more likely to get custodial sentences for the same crimes as people that wouldn't get a custodial sentence for that same thing. In this bill, they're suggesting that we have three-month prison sentences for people that are on an unauthorised encampment. Well, 
the worst part about that is that what happens when you put somebody's parents in prison for three months? Well, that child will get taken into care. I mean, that's not written into the bill, but obviously if your parents are in prison, then what happens to the children? Well, they'll obviously get taken away by social services, and we already have a history of being forcibly adopted by the care system and having our children taken away from us and put into non-Gypsy and Traveller families. Then there's also the provision for £2,500 fines, and obviously these people are some of the poorest families in the country, and that's what they're, they're facing. So th- this bill is, is pretty horrendous. And they've had no thought about extra site provision. They've had no thought about negotiate stopping or, or any of the rest of it. They, they seem to want to round us up and put us into prisons. I mean, you just mentioned um, the kind of the percentage of, you know, Romani gypsies that are still, you know, nomadic um, as being a very small percentage. Yeah, and Irish travellers as well, yeah. Yeah. And, and you described it as an unconventional form of homelessness. I mean, I suppose, A, what are the conditions like in the sites that are permitted? And yeah, what makes you, could you unpack that a little bit? Why have you described it as like this unconventional form of homelessness? Well, it's an unconventional form of homelessness is because what we think of as conventional homelessness is somebody on the streets in a sleeping bag or something like that. And they don't have like a roof over their head. Well, gypsies and travellers who have trailers, you know, they do have a roof over their head, but they have nowhere to park it and nowhere to live. So, you know, they're better off in the sense that, you know, they've got somewhere under some sort of cover to sleep at night. But but that's about it. That's really the only difference. And the conditions at sites that already exist are horrendous, like access to bin disposal, access to adequate sewage solutions are absolutely horrendous. Transit sites, the ones that have been approved, they often have regulations on them where it's like, oh, you have to agree to be escorted on and off the site by police. You have to agree to have bailiffs visits, you know, every week to make sure that you've not got any stolen goods. And it's it's all very prison camp like. And then they're wondering why gypsy and travellers don't want to live there. Well, nobody wants to live under that sort of surveillance and intrusion. So historically, we've always had these things called halting sites or stopping places. And we've always had historic locations like the Black Patch in Birmingham, Gypsy Hill even, was now built upon and things like that. But these historic stopping places have been sold off or they've been built on or sold by landlords. And we can no longer stop at these places. And whilst all of these historic places we've always stopped on our way to uh, events like Appleby, Stowe, Horse Fair, things like that, all of those places are now gone, but they've never been replaced by anything else. So we're being squeezed from both sides. There's a lot of nimbyism in this country where people don't want to approve uh, authorised sites, but they also don't want unauthorised sites mm. either. They basically have the position where they just don't want us to exist as a people in this country. I mean, they don't even want us in houses. This is the worst thing about it is that they'll go, oh, well, you know, if you're just integrated into houses, you'd be okay." Well, that's not the case because landlords won't rent to these families. As we found out during the covid pandemic, when many families were seeking shelter from being on the road, landlords wouldn't even rent to them. Estate agents wouldn't even talk to them. So even if they wanted to be assimilated, they don't even have that choice. 
So that's what I mean by an unconventional form of homelessness. Like the situation out there, unless you've got your own piece of land, luckily that my family have got their own piece of land that we can live on and not be evicted from. But unless you've got that, the situation is extremely dire out there for some of my cousins and and family members and and the Irish travellers that I know as well. So yeah, but like I said before, the situations on the permanent sites that they have, for example, right, where permanent sites get approved tend to be on ex-rubbish disposal tips. So we have to have our kids playing in ex-rubbish disposal places. So they could be finding glass bottles that are sharp or whatever. You know, it could be anything from your know, heroin needles to anything. This is the sort of places that they put us because we're not seen as desirable enough to live near other people. So it's very deliberate. It's like that situation with Chesterfield and Toby Perkins. Well, they're lacking a site in Chesterfield. But the only sites that they would even look at was like a ex-rubbish disposal quarry or something like that, which is totally unsuitable. But all the other good bits of land that are sort of suitable for human habitation, they're not okay. And then we get to Dale Farm, that big massive eviction that happened at Dale Farm. After saying that gypsies and travellers couldn't live there, there was talk about them putting a housing estate on Dale Farm. So it wasn't that people couldn't live there. It was just that gypsies and travellers couldn't live there. So we experience a form of segregation and we're pushed to the margins of society, essentially. Um, but look, if you look at the what this bill will do, well, look at Dale Farm when they evicted. That was land that the gypsies and travellers actually owned. And they sent vans and vans full of riot police there to beat those families and forcibly evict them. And, you know, that operation cost millions of pounds. So that's the sort of situation we're looking at. Mm. It's interesting hearing you talk about one of these sort of results of COVID there um, in terms of, you know, landlords not wanting to rent to people from GRT communities. I was wondering, kind of on the flip side, because one thing that COVID demonstrated quite clearly when it first hit was the extent to which a lot of, you know, long-standing issues got immediately resolved, even if only in the short term. So, for instance, like getting a lot of rough sleepers off the streets and into sort of accommodation uh, you know, it turns out that was quite easy to do. There just never been the political will to do it. Was there any instances of, you know, issues faced by people in GRT communities and in nomadic communities, I suppose, particularly, that were similarly addressed uh, as a direct result of the pandemic? Or was it mostly things getting worse? So, I mean, whilst there's things getting worse in terms of, you know, we tend to live in overcrowded sites, uh, the places that we live that don't have the right infrastructure. So, you know, when the pandemic hits obviously covid spread through sites like wildfire and killed plenty of pretty prominent people in our communities Mm. um some things were solved overnight like for example education they told disabled people and gypsies and travelers that you know there'd be no access to education you know you need to come into schools this that and the other all of a sudden when the pandemic hits and everybody else's children are affected all of a sudden you can do work from home and things like that You can get access to homework and other stuff. So it's like what you say, there's never been a political will because it hasn't affected the middle class white people and the conservatives. Once it starts affecting them, it's, it's actually wonderful, the things that we can achieve as a society. I mean, even when it comes to the government's own advice in the pandemic was when you have an unauthorized encampment, instead of keeping them on the road, you should provide them with somewhere to live temporarily or let them stay on an unauthorized encampment for a while, provide them with bins, provide them with toilets, 
Because if you're forcing them onto the road, those people are potentially going around the country spreading the pandemic, right? But then the government's own advice is that. But then we have Michael Gove. I think he's the minister for the Duchy of Lancaster at the time. He was getting very involved in a case of evicting an unauthorised encampment from his constituency of Surrey Heath. You know, the government doesn't even follow their own advice when it's in their constituency, if that makes sense. So in that respect, it didn't really improve. But look, our outcomes are as bad as it gets anyway. Pandemic or no pandemic, we die younger. All our outcomes are bad anyway. So in in terms of actually how it's affected us, probably a lot less in terms of scales of magnitude Hmm. than other communities, because obviously we're already hit by everything badly. We're already refused from GP surgeries and the rest of it. So sort of anti-Gypsy Roma traveller racism is often talked about as the last acceptable form of racism, which obviously isn't to say that other forms of racism are on the retreat uh, you know, by any means. But what do people mean when they use this phrase? Um, and I was wondering what both of your thoughts are on it as a statement. Like, does that ring true? So there was a, a study done in 2017 or 18, I think, that um, basically said that of the people asked in the UK... Would you be happy to be openly anti-Gypsy Roma traveller? 44% of them said that they would. And the second highest percentage in terms of racism was Islamophobia, which I think was around 22%. So when we talk about it being the last acceptable form of racism, I think there's some slight truth in that. I think I don't think that it's particularly helpful to sort of like cast each other off against each other and to... It's kind of like, well, you know, it's much harder for this because it's much easier, to, you know, it's much more brazen, etc. Like, we know it's there. We know that anti-Gypsy Roman Traveller feeling is not only baked into society, but baked into our laws, into our mm. structures, our policy. We know it's there. And the left particularly need to be much more forthright in calling it out and not kowtowing to it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think... When you look at media, look, generally look at the way that stories are portrayed, stories, you know, you had the horrendous Channel 4 dispatches on uh, the, the crime. I can't remember the actual title of it, but it was crime around traveller camps and, and they came to some spurious conclusion uh, based on what looked like utter nonsense in terms of their actual research um, that, you know, traveller camps are inherently kind of rife with criminality. You can go and various different ways that that the communities are portrayed in the media or the way they're spoken about um, particularly in the kind of like right-wing media um there's always kind of a sense of hysteria and, and histrionic thing but you know that's the same for lots of different communities in lots of different ways and these things all kind of they all very much link with one another when luke was talking earlier about uh roma people being subject to the hostile environment i think what's really important to remember is that Back in 2002-2003, when charter flights were first being brought in by the Blair government, it was the second round of these charter flights directly targeted, majoritively Roma women, to deport them to the Czech Republic, which, as Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic, was sterilising Roma women from the 70s up until there were cases, I think, that were still being reported in the 2000s, potentially. And so wow. all of these things link in with one another. So, like, yes, it's obviously incredibly important to talk very specifically about anti-Gypsy, Roma traveller kind of sentiment, about how it specifically affects the communities, 
how the various different like parts of racism, you know, also as, as Luke so eloquently kind of explained earlier, Gypsy Roman Traveller people are also very different, um, you know, and there's lots of different kind of iterations of that within it. And so there are lots of different ways that people are going to experience racism within that. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like a very roundabout way of saying yes, but no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it comes to this last acceptable form of racism type statement, personally, I don't really like it. And the reason being I don't like it is because the more and more I speak to my black comrades or, you know, Muslims or whoever it may be, um, the more I speak to them, the more I realize that actually all of racism and discrimination is pretty much accepted in this society. It manifests itself in different ways, but it is very much accepted. Like Islamophobia passes the dinner table test. Mm. Anti-Gypsy and traveller racism passes the dinner table test. People might not say the equivalent of the P word, pikey, in case anyone doesn't know what it is. That's obviously a discriminatory term for gypsies and travellers. People don't say the equivalence of that about other minorities. That is true. But the underlying racism that people experience is pretty much still the same. It's still there. They just say it in a more polite way, if that makes sense. So I don't think it's the last acceptable form of racism. I just think our whole society is built on racism. And racism is a sort of pressure relief valve in our society and has been since the medieval times. Remember, like, we're some of the first people that come to this country to experience this kind of racism as a sort of pressure relief valve. Us and Jewish people. So whilst medieval societies would set themselves up with, you know, the aristocrats and then they would set Jewish people up as sort of a mediator between the population and the aristocrats. And then when anything goes wrong, they'd blame Jewish people. The same thing was happening for gypsies and travellers and Roma. They would basically say that these people are at the bottom of society. If you don't watch out, you'll be treated like them. Also, these people are where all the crime and all of society's problems come from. And that's the truth of it. It's very much baked into Western societies, this form of structural racism. But yeah, in terms of the last acceptable form of racism, the stuff I've genuinely seen, you know, whether it's against black people, whether it's against, you know, Southeast Asian people, like I've seen it all now. I never used to think that was the case, but the more and more I sort of expose myself to different movements and talk to different movements, I realise that we're all in this together. We've all been treated a certain way. And this is what's so great about the Kill the Bill movement and things like that, is that we're all going to each other. Oh, so you're treated like this as well. I thought it was just us. Well, it turns out it's not just us. So, yeah, the idea of acceptable form of racism, I just think that needs to go, that whole terminology. But, um, yeah, I get the sentiment behind it. I don't think people are sort of malicious by using it. I just think that we just need to accept that all sorts of racism is rife in our society, frankly. I also think it's quite important to kind of like be very clear about the fact that all of these these kind of racisms very much rely upon one another. So the existence of one kind of very much means that there's the existence of all the others. So kind of trying to denote it as particularly like noteworthy and particularly separate really kind of undermines the structural nature of racism in this country. It really undermines the kind of like pervasive and historical nature of racism in this country. Mm. I mean, one thing this uh, is reminding me of is, uh, yeah, Luke, you were on the, the Socialist Think Tank podcast a little while back, and you use an interesting phrase there, uh, something along the lines of how the GRT community is used as a Trojan horse 
right, through which the ruling classes kind of uh, attack or curtail the rights, freedoms, or whatever, of people in society more broadly, which is quite an interesting idea. I suppose that's one way, perhaps, in which this idea of it being an acceptable form of racism, uh, you know, plays into this, that people might permit these kind of uh, attacks on GRT people, but actually it's ultimately not good for anyone. Um, I mean, they're attacking themselves. Like I say in that Think Tank podcast is that we're dehumanized in this country to the extent where people go, oh, they don't deserve these basic rights. And they don't realize by us losing those basic rights, they could also lose their basic rights at the drop of a hat or they already have lost them. They just haven't realized it yet. So, for example, if somebody's parents has their family house taken away from them and they become homeless as like a young adult or whatever and they go and live in their car well they could be subject to the same sort of laws around criminalization of homelessness and trespass as we could they just haven't noticed it yet because they think we're lesser the government basically tricks people into giving up their rights and then being happy with it and then until it's too late when they realize that actually they've lost those fundamental rights so that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, like I say, I definitely explain it as a Trojan horse. The minorities like us are just used as a scapegoat and used as a tool in which to sort of engineer the society that they want. And the society that the Tories want, especially indicated by what they're putting into these police bills and also the one against refugees. Uh, recently and then all the ones about war crimes and spy cops you know having sex with climate activists and the rest of it which is now all totally kosher under what they're saying um, then we're heading towards a sort of fascist society a police state this is genuine authoritarianism and like the only people you'll hear explain it that way is minorities who are directly affected and we see it coming because we've been fine-tuned to spot these situations happening before they happen, because that's how we've survived all of these years. Whereas your middle-class you know, Tory voter is walking around thinking, you know, this is fine, they'll never come for me, and actually, they will. It's like what we're seeing with journalists. Journalists are the first people to put in their newspapers about gypsies and travellers all being criminal, blaming us for the acts of a couple of individuals from our community and things like that. Now, all of a sudden, they want to do journalists for espionage and put them in jail for 14 years. I mean, it says it all, really, doesn't it? So (laughs) journalists have created this environment. They sold their own rights down the river by keep publishing all this crap about minorities, all this racist stuff and things like that. I think Luke's right to mention the other horrific bills are also kind of going through the House at the moment and the other pieces of legislation that have recently passed because the policing bill is one of many and they it kind of they're coming at it from every different angle that they can think of um, with this introduction of increasingly authoritarian, increasing kind of totalitarian tactics and, and laws. And I think we should be genuinely very concerned about it. And I think also we should be really concerned about the way in which people that have been quite vocal in their opposition, so in various different parts of the Labour Party, I know Starmer was essentially had to be fucking kowtowed to actually oppose it and only did so once he'd seen the police decking young women, essentially, in Clapham. Um, but other other members of the Labour Party have been fairly forthright, particularly other members of the, of the front bench, but... 
a lot of the framing of it has sort of just been on protest and, and they've very much kind of kept within these safe safe realms and then and then other other little bits of it you know, the way that it's going to affect GRT people are kind of it's kind of an afterthought and the, the same with the, the nationality and borders bill you know they opposed it but I mean fairly lacklusterly and if you put all of these things together it really paints quite a terrifying picture of where we're at as a country where we're at as a society and, and where we're going and where we could go and we've got all of this sort of fanfare at the moment about Boris there was the, the Cummings interview earlier this week and Boris being this incompetent oath that's controlled by people around him, blah, 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 all of this stuff. And I think there's like definitely something in that, in the sense that Boris is quite clearly an idiot. But actually, there's something bigger going on, something wider. And I think that it's a bit of a sideshow. And we need to kind of look at all of these things happening in tandem as well. I think that's quite important. It's happening at a real like rate of knots. And they've managed to do it as well. I think what's what's quite interesting you know there will be different people that have different views on why this has happened but they've put through a series of pieces of legislation that are draconian and horrific at a rate of speed during a pandemic so at the time when we've had hundreds of thousands of people dying in this country when people have been destitute and people have been desperate locked away in their homes the government has still made time to prioritize taking away the rights of various different people, of expanding massively the powers of the police and various arms of the state in being able to impede people's lives and being able to break the law. They've spent time, you know, time, money in bringing in and like bolstering our, you know, the already horrific immigration policy. There's arguments to be made that they're you know, trying to kind of do it under the cover of the pandemic because people are too all over the place to be able to sort of counter it but obviously we showed that that was bullshit in March and, and all the way through April when people were out on the streets and the tens of thousands against the policing bill I just think what it actually points to is this desire this 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 real keen desire to create the kind of society that should really petrify all of us and I don't really know where we go from here and I don't really know how to begin going from here and um, Loads of people, when when the policing bill was going through Parliament, loads of people I was speaking to, both sort of like, you know, who were within Parliament, people in NGOs, people in the movement, loads of people like, it's all right, at committee, it'll get stripped out, at committee, it'll be when it, it, when it is. There were, if I remember correctly, there were 18 amendments and one addition. All of them were government amendments or additions. None of the opposition amendments passed. None of them got through. And so loads of people now are saying, oh, you know, it'll be fine. It'll get stripped in the Lords. Well, I think to a certain extent, some of it might do. The reality is, and I think this, the terrifying truth of the matter, is that the majority of that policing bill will become law. And now we have to kind of think about how we go about opposing it once it becomes legislation. And I think it means, you know, in terms of like protests, it means making it unworkable. And that means sort of you know, coming out in such massive numbers that it's absolutely impossible to arrest everybody for being loud. But... In terms of how it's going to affect Gypsy Roma and Traveller communities, we need to start seriously thinking about that, both inside and outside the, the communities, about how we're going to resist and how we're going to protect people from this legislation. Hmm. So what can people do now, I suppose? Where can people go firstly to educate themselves about issues affecting GRT communities? And how can we act in solidarity meaningfully with uh, those communities now while this bill 
isn't law, while it could still be opposed? Do the simple things. You don't have to be somebody that goes and change yourself to somebody's trailer to stop them from taking it away. That's great if you feel comfortable doing that, but there's all sorts of activism and things that you can do to aim towards the overall goal. So one thing I would say is go to your local planning meetings. So when the council says we've got a local plan, we're looking for input, go to that and ask them, what are you doing for gypsies and travellers, specifically nomadic ones, but also what are you doing in terms of permanent sites? Are you providing any? What does that allocation look like? That's one thing you can do. Number two is really simple. Challenge your friends and your family. When they sit around the dinner table using the P word and everything else, saying, oh, they're all just criminals and stereotyping us um, and using racial tropes, challenge them on it. Be like, why do these people have less right to a roof over their head and somewhere to live than, than we do or anybody else in society? educate them where you find things that you didn't know before or you were ignorant on make sure you tell your friends and family about it that was luke smith and ben smoke on radicals and conversation if you're enjoying this discussion you want to keep listening then you can of course head over to patreon.com forward slash pluto press where patrons can access the unabridged versions of this and other episodes of the podcast So a big thank you to Luke, Ben, and of course to Joe as well for taking part in today's discussion. We'll be back with another Radicals in Conversation next month. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.